Hello and welcome to series four, episode two of Out With Susie Ruffle. First of all, thank you so, so much for all of you that got in touch after Darren's episode last week. Oh, isn't he just wonderful? We've all fallen in love with him, right? I mean, I just love him so much. What a lovely guy and what a special episode. Great way to start the series. And I've got another fantastic episode today. I recorded it just a few days ago and immediately thought this episode has to go out immediately because it's so great. Um, We've got loads of great ones coming up in the series. I'm so excited to share them all with you. Thank you so much to those of you that have got in touch with suggestions. I'm reaching out constantly to people. If you know anyone, get in touch with them, tell them to come on the show. But uh, we've got a really exciting series coming up. And as ever, thank you for listening. Thank you for getting in touch. If you want to get in touch with me, you can. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram. So if you want to get in touch, that's where you can find me. Lots of you have left lovely messages on the iTunes app as well, which is super helpful and has rated and reviewed it, which is great. So thanks so much. Thank you for sharing it. Um, It's very, very appreciated. We've got a fantastic episode today with Jane Hill, who, um, who I just love, who I think is brilliant. And we had such a wonderful conversation and uh, she's another person that I'm now trying to become friends with. Uh, She's absolutely brilliant. And I think you're gonna really, really enjoy the chat that we had. But before that, as always, I will share a couple of listener emails. Okay, here we go. Hi Susie, first of all, I'd like to say how much I love the show. It really comes across that you love and respect the people that you interview. And I love listening to you, a queer person I admire, interview queer people you admire. Out is very empowering and hearing other queer voices in your interviews and in the emails you read out makes the world a much warmer, friendlier space. So I thought I'd add my little gay voice to the mix. I'm Esther, I'm a 21 year old third year music student at Goldsmiths. I love baking and looking after my many plants, but my main shtick has always been being a queer person and being a Christian. Long story short, I grew up with both parents being Baptist ministers. Being raised very Christian, I realized I was gay aged 14 having an oh shit moment. And then a long, long process of reconciling my faith in a religion that has done a lot of harm to LGBTQ people with being gay. I've also had a very weird couple of years, much like everybody else. When I started uni in 2019, I found a supportive group of LGBT Christian friends, as well as my straight breast friend, Daisy. We all joined the Christian union together and quickly realized it was homophobic. On top of that, we were thrown into lockdown and suddenly the community I thought I'd built at uni quickly disintegrated. On top of that, a gay friend of mine at another uni was banned from being on the committee of his Christian union for being gay. When I asked him how we could fix it, he told me, I don't expect any better. And that broke my heart. However, hope is not lost. When my friends and I realized we could not end homophobia in our Christian union, we all left and started our own society, which will be starting in late September. You are talking to the president of Goldsmith's new society, Cornerstone. And it's at Cornerstone Gold, if you want to have a look at that on Twitter. I am now a trustee of a firm, which is a Christian group for LGBTQ Baptist Christians that fight for the rights of LGBT people in Christian spaces. I'm not saying this to brag. In reality, the backlash from other Christians and my own family is quite intimidating. I just wanted to say that queer young people in religious spaces, like myself, are forced to choose very quickly between their faith and their identity, both of which are massive chunks of what makes up who we are. 
The truth is nobody should be forced to choose. There are communities out there who want to help if you just keep looking. My friend still isn't on the committee and he doesn't have any friends at his Christian union that backed him up. But he has me, my friends and the wider LGBT community that loves him. I have a ton of other stories as well, but this email is rambling enough as it is. Funnily enough, it's quite difficult to condense your life experience as a queer person into an email. I hope you read this out on your podcast, but if not, no worries. I just want to encourage you and say I love the podcast. Keep it up. And that's from Esther. And then Esther says some lovely things about my comedy. Thanks, Esther. Um, I'm so pleased that you wrote in, Esther. I think that's something that has come up quite a lot. Uh, on the podcast um, I'm not a person uh, with, with a particular faith as I've mentioned before but I know that reconciling identity and faith is something that can be really really difficult and it sounds like you're making great strides uh, not only in your university but in the wider queer Christian space um, to make people feel in, more included and more accepted uh, and that's just such a wonderful thing I don't know if all the listeners listened to the bonus episode which was a very difficult episode it was with my friend Emily who's just made a podcast called Thinking Straight now I will highlight it is a podcast about banning conversion therapy however in one of the podcasts we did go to a fully inclusive church and we did meet Christians that have reconciled their faith and their identity and we had wonderful um, conversations with them and whilst the subject matter of that podcast is really tough and it's a really difficult listen there was some real light in those darker moments from queer people that had found uh, a refuge in their Christianity and in their faith whilst being a queer person so you're absolutely right Esther um, hope is not lost and um, I'll just let people know again the Twitter handle uh, for Esther's new group is called Cornerstone Gold at Cornerstone Gold and she's also shared the website of Affirm which is a UK group for LGBTQ Baptist Christians which is www.affirm.org.uk so if that feels like something that you'd like to be part of or you'd just like to read up a little bit more about so we can um, be allies to our Christian uh, brothers and sisters in the queer community, then uh, maybe that's a great place for you to start. Thank you, Esther, for getting in touch and good luck in your next year of uni. Okay, let's share another email. Dear Susie, when I first started listening to your podcast, it was something that I listened to while I weave and make textiles in my studio. Yes, I'm from another century. I love your stand-up and your approach to interviews, done in an informative, inquisitive and respectful way. For some people, labels are a catalyst for them being themselves and announcing themselves to the world. For other people, like me, they have found like a weighted placard around their neck. If I use this term, and then maybe I evolve and change as all humans do, then what do I do? What happens if I meet someone who shifts my perspective? What if I learn something about myself and feel some other label is relevant? Maybe not instead of, but as well as. I did not associate with any particular labels, and I never have done really. Coming out for me always felt unnecessary and strange. I was not, and am not, ashamed of who I am, my gender or my sexuality, but I never felt like I needed to make an announcement to the world. It was something for me to know, and for others to not even wonder. At an all-girls school, I was never asked who I was seeing. I was bullied for being different, I was interested in nature, and I was separated, and I kept myself to myself, head down and studious introverted and quite lonely, surrounded by the slurs of that's so gay and the mean snippy comments about the lesbian emo weirdos in the corner. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> I stayed quiet at university, even though studying art and design in London meant I was surrounded by openly gay men and women in queer culture. 
I still did not feel comfortable with saying, hey, this is me. I knew from the age of nine that I liked women. I was taught it was fine to be what or who I wanted to be as long as I was happy. Thank you, family. But I also looked at boys sometimes and I wondered what that was about. Did I like what they looked like or the idea of being in a relationship with them or having a boyfriend? It wasn't really of any interest to me, I don't think. Oh, I was really confused. Yet when I was 25, I started using the term gay to describe myself after I suppose pressuring myself into hurrying up and making a decision. I must admit when I first came out, I was sort of umming and ahhing as to whether to label myself. I ended up watching videos of you doing stand-up and felt reassured. A funny, openly gay woman who was amazing to see and hear. Oh, thank you. Yes, I must be gay. Yep, that's it. I'm a gay woman, not a lesbian though. This label didn't sit right with me. Not because I have anything against the label. It just didn't feel right for me. But gay women still did not reflect me as a whole. I always felt like I needed an asterisk. That I needed to explain my whole entire being to people so they could understand who I really was. But I don't. And I never have to. I am me and there's no specific label to me but I wanted to feel understood myself and who I am. Fast forward two years and I still didn't feel wholly comfortable or as if I identified with any labels. They're for cans, right? I'm just me. Me who feels jumpy at the idea of having to define myself for another person. So imagine my surprise when I listened back to the episode with Jude. Oh wow, there was a massive penny drop. A few rewind moments of the things they said. Was it really true that there was someone else out there who does not see themselves as a man or a woman, does not feel that the trans identity fits them but still prefers the masculine aesthetic, feels that they belong in a masculine body. The next day I was smiling a lot. I've never been bothered about fitting in with other people or being able to say I'm like you, but this episode really got me. I'm just going to put a trigger warning here. Uh, the email goes on to talk briefly about anxiety, depression and anorexia. So if you don't want to hear about that today, skip forward the next bit. Okay. For years I've struggled with mental health challenges, including anxiety, depression, and I've battled with food, with a severe case of anorexia nervosa in my teenage years. It was not until recently that I realized my eating problem were me trying to control my body and stop developing as a woman. Not just saying I want to be thin or I hate the word around me, but saying I want to change who I am and who I'm supposed to become. I didn't want hips or breasts or curves. I wanted a more masculine appearance. I wanted to look like a boy. My tomboy appearance and my love of camo and khaki and practical clothing was not just an outward thing. I realized questioning my sexuality was partly me questioning and getting mixed up with my gender. I looked at boys and wondered, hmm, is this fancying them or wanting to look like them? Turns out it was the latter. Now as I'm writing this, I'm deciding whether and who to tell that I'm non-binary and thinking that I will claim this label for me. Some people won't get it and won't want to understand. Forget them. I'm working on an aesthetic which suits me and that makes me comfortable and happy. Maybe non-binary gay, non-binary queer. You're reading the words of someone who's not 100%, but closer than I was before listening to your podcast. Questioning yourself can eat away at a person who feels outcast anyway but also feeling they don't properly conform to a label. I would say, if anyone else is feeling like this, remember this. Do not feel you have to define yourself by other people's terms or labels. Do not feel you have to justify your existence with an excuse for your being. Just be yourself in whatever guise that may be and let those who want to be close and get to know you understand you. 
Take your time. What you are isn't the same as who you are. You are component parts of a whole, unique and individual human being. Thank you so much, Susie. I doubt you'll read this out, but if you do, you can use my name. Love, Daisy. Um, well, I did read it out. Um, thank you so much for sharing this. I, I think that you've really um, explained what a lot of people feel about uh, about labels and about finding something that does fit for you. And sometimes I think people never find a label that is quite right for them. But I'm so pleased that this podcast and my conversation with my friend Jude really helped that. And um, I will let them know. I will send them a message today. But thank you so much for getting in touch. And I'm so pleased that you're feeling more comfortable in how you're identifying. That is the very reason that I created this podcast. So thank you for sharing that with me. If you want to get in touch, you can, please do. The email is at hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Now on to today's conversation, the fantastic Jane Hill. She's been on our screens for, I think, nearly like 30 years, 25 years. Incredible. What an incredible woman and what a lovely conversation. I just loved this and I really hope you will too. I'm very excited for today's conversation. Now, you will know Jane Hill as one of the UK's most trusted journalists and news presenters. She's been at the BBC in some form for 30 years and has covered the biggest news stories from around the world, including things like Hurricane Katrina, 9-11, the disappearance of Madeleine McCann, the inauguration of Barack Obama, and of course, the pandemic. Outside of work, Jane has dedicated much of her life to championing diversity and inclusion mentoring young journalists, hosting conferences and projects that help women and girls and other minority group really fulfil their potential. The consistency of having a gay woman on my screen for more than 20 years has been a real touchstone for me and many others. I wonder if Jane realises that having that sort of visibility day in, day out, just how much it makes you feel seen. I clearly remember when I found out that Jane was gay, every time I turned on the BBC News, I would think, ah, someone like me. And those moments are always precious. I'm delighted to have her chatting to me today. Welcome to the show, Jane. Oh, Susie, thank you. What a lovely introduction. Yeah, someone like me, that's, that goes to the heart of our whole community as, as gay women, doesn't it? But, but it's lovely to be here. Thank you very much. So you've been at the BBC forever? 300 years, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's impressive. It's quite something, isn't it? I should sell the tablets I'm on. Um, <laughs> oh my God, Susie, it's such a long time, isn't it? I don't quite know how that's happened. Yes, I did start volunteering in BBC Local Radio when I was literally a teenager. And it's an interesting thing because I don't know where any of that came from. I just grew up loving radio and mm -hmm. I cannot tell you why or how. No family connections, no media connections. Both my parents left school at 16. I mean, just no obvious reason as to why I would fall in love with radio, which is what happened. But I, from about 12 years old, I just thought, oh, I really want to work in radio. And there we are. I, I don't know how, how that happened, where that comes from in life. Isn't that amazing? What were you listening to? Were you listening to like local radio? Was it like Radio 4 or like what, what sort of stuff? Were you, like, were you into current affairs? Sort of, I, the current affairs thing came a little bit later. I mean, I'd always do fantastic cod psychology about my, <laughs> about my upbringing, as maybe lots of us do. And I always say I, I grew up in a house where, you know, I hope my mum won't, won't mind me saying this, you know, there were no books. My parents were not readers at all. Mm -hmm. The only books were the Wisdom Almanac because my dad loved cricket. But there was always a daily newspaper and the radio was always on and it was always the BBC. Mm -hmm. Radio 4 for my dad or Radio 2 for my mum. And this was in the absolute heyday of Terry Wogan and who was just a genius. And so I grew up loving pop music from hearing mum listen to 
Terry Wogan be really cheeky about Eurovision and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And then my bedroom was above the kitchen. So every morning when I woke up, I could just hear the Today programme, you know, coming through the floorboard sort of thing. And my parents always watched the news. They always watched the nine o'clock news as it was then, mm-hmm. always. And I suppose you you just, you don't think about it, do you, when you're growing up? But I suppose that said to me, it's really important to be abreast of what's going on in the world. Whatever your role is in life, you should know what's going on in this country and abroad. And I think that just sort of seeped in. And I love radio to death to this day I mean I I am kind of obsessive about you know radio breaks I'm kind of really excited because then I say to Sarah oh I can go and buy another radio now because that's radio (laughs) and she just looks at me like how many radios do we need Jane no 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 you have to have a radio in every room (laughs) yeah so just thought I really really want to work in radio and I didn't really know what that meant but then I started volunteering well it was BBC Radio Sussex because I mm-hmm. happened to grow up in Sussex and that was my nearest station based in Brighton and I just sort of went along and said can I do anything please and I still say this to people today who contact me and say how can I get into broadcasting because if you show the vaguest hint of enthusiasm yeah. in a local radio station they are so cash-strapped, staff-strapped, they're so willing in my experience to take on someone with a bit of interest and a bit of enthusiasm that they said okay we'll sit in on some programs and see what you like and and that is just the best training in the world because Mm. you get to do a bit of everything so you do magazine phone-in programs you know you take the calls and sort of filter out those who'd make good guests on a phone-in show I worked in the newsroom as a secretary typing out the copy Um, I was a very good typist I did learn to type at school and that's probably the single best life skill I've ever had (laughs) so I was brilliant I was really fast and accurate so I could do that they taught me how to cut tape and do interviews on good old fashioned viewers. You're far too young oh, to remember wow. the movie, but they weighed a ton. I know, I know what it them is around. though. They broke your left shoulder as you carried them around and then you physically cut the tape to, to edit an interview. And I loved all that. I absolutely loved it. Of course, all that stuff's digital now, but I loved it and just really learned a bit of everything. And so you could learn what you loved and what you didn't love and what you were good at and what you were less good at. And, and, and it all sort of went from there really. Did you always like being on air? I had a lot of people tell me I had a very good voice for it. That had come out at school. My school wasn't particularly academic school, but it was very good at speech and drama and that sort of thing, putting on plays and everything. And I was always the narrator in the school play. (laughs) (laughs) I really was. Jane's got a nice voice. She can read all the story bits. I also had a very good projection on the stage, which might just mean I'm loud. I don't know. anyway not a bad thing I was I was good at all that um I was terrible at sport but I was good at that sort of thing did I like being on air I was very keen to do a bit of everything and I was very keen to do all the behind the scenes stuff because I genuinely wanted to learn from the ground up without a shadow of doubt I think that's really important I think it's something that people often skip over and I think you can sometimes see it when you're working with people that are maybe slightly more challenging but you can see when people have made a shortcut you know and got in a bit quick or like they might have a relative in the industry you can sort of see that they don't understand like 
for example, like what a runner's doing and how important a runner is. And kind of without the runner, the show probably won't happen because it's these little things that then the, the assistant producer needs and then the producer needs and then the executive needs and then on yes. the camera needs. It's so important to know all those little cogs to make a thing work. And in television in particular, despite my absolute love of radio, we might come back to that. Obviously, I've ended up in telly. I'm not quite sure how I've ended up there so long because that was never the plan. But anyway, the television, even more than radio, obviously, you will know, requires an awful lot more people to make it Mm. happen and it is a team effort and I try really hard and I hope I hope I do this I try really hard to remember that it is absolutely a team and you Mm. will not get on air or you will not stay on air without the person operating the auto cue and the director in the gallery and the floor manager who gets your guests on and off the set yeah and makeup who make you feel better and a makeup artist although don't start me on that Susie because we haven't had any for 18 months as the viewers can tell oh you've still not got <laughs> them have I you I am so losing the will to live with it let me tell you <laughs> Oh my God. They, they took them away for comedy shows as, as well for quite a long time. And I would say that you can really tell the difference in the shows that I was like, oh, Jesus, that was one where I didn't yeah. have makeup because, <laughs> oh, I look tired. Um, yes, yes, looking tired. That's half the thing, isn't it? You know, the lights are really bright and you have, yeah. well, you know, you have to really cake it on, don't you? Yeah. And I, I do feel I've got slightly better at it over the last year and a half, but oh my God. Well, I don't think it's noticeable, so don't worry. Honestly, I mean, hashtag first world problems, but it is a layer of stress on your job that you just don't need because yeah. I, I can't put eye makeup on because as you can see, I wear glasses for reading. So yeah. by definition, I know people go, oh, you, especially because you're a woman, you can do makeup. Well, you should see me down in the makeup room. So I'm lifting up my glasses, trying to put the eyeliner on. This is not very good for radio. I'm sorry. But, you know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to demonstrate to you. I, put the eyeliner on and then you put your glasses back down and is it skew if and then you get the cotton buds out to try and correct it it takes me three times as long as it would take a makeup artist yeah of course if you wear glasses obviously you can't really apply eyeliner yeah it's a nightmare it's a fairly obvious point so oh yes it's it's been tough and hilariously in much as i love the bbc in true bbc style they're coming back later in october and we've been told they're allowed to do 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Brilliant, like isn't it? So I said to a friend, I said, shall I get them to make up the left side of my face or the right side of my face? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Tune in to the One O'Clock News to find out. <laughs> yeah, to whether you're sort of on a profile or just yes. doing the whole news. Dear director, can I do this one in profile? <laughs> <laughs> so... Did you carry on doing radio when you were... Because you went to St Mary's University, didn't you? I, University of London. I went to Queen Mary, which Queen is Mary, part sorry. of the University yeah. of London on the Mile End Road. Um, and I did a politics degree. I was going to be slightly rude about my politics degree, which is very... Not, not to alarm anyone I was at university with. I loved university. They were literally, literally some of the happiest days of my life. Just fabulous. And I made friends that I am still friends with today. And that is the most wonderful thing in life. But I did get to university and realised that probably what I really had wanted was a degree in current affairs which is not necessarily the same thing as a degree in politics. Politics A-level wasn't an option at my school so I went to university to do politics completely blind. I'd never studied anything like this. I mean I am a class, I'm your classic arts graduate and I got there and with hindsight, no disrespect to my lovely lecturers, but I, I do wish I'd read English because 
uh, that would have been my passion, really. I'm very good at regrets, unfortunately, Susie, as you might discover. So uh, that is that is one of them. <laughs> but don't you think, oh, well, had I have done English, would I be doing this now? Would I have this life? Because it might have been different. You're so right. It might have been. And, and, and you know, there will have been things I learned along the way that I'm, sh- I'm sure have been useful. <laughs> there must yeah, be something. Of course, something. <laughs> there'll be something. And there is, there is. And that, that's not a criticism of my university in any way. I think it was it was a life lesson that you're, you're too young to know at 18 that I just thought, oh, I'm going to sign up for politics. And with hindsight, I think y- you can't really judge that unless you've done that at a, as an A-level. 18 is so young. I mean, I did a freshers gig on Sunday Oh wow! <laughs> I, I feel I'm too old for these gigs, but they keep booking me, so I, so so off she goes. I mean, the first issue is that they were born in 2003. Oh my god! <laughs> and so, you know, I'm sort of standing there like I just kept referring to myself as Great Aunt Sue's, like <laughs> I'm Great Aunt Sue's. That's who I'm going to be for you this evening, and like kept doing material, but then at the same time was like guys, don't get into drugs. <laughs> I just became, like I just as well bought a seat on stage and like turned it around and sat on it like I was trying to be like a cool teacher. But, you know, you look at those guys and they were they were lovely. They were so sweet. They were such a great audience, really. But you go, you've made like a decision about like what you want to do with your life and you all seem 12. Like it's such a young age, isn't it, to go, I'm going to dedicate three years to this thing and hope that it's what I'm still into in three years time. Yes, Yes, although I'm, there is a little bit of me that's envious of freshers because uh, going back to what I said, it, it is the three three of the best years of your life. I think oh. it's just fantastic. Although my heart breaks for undergrads now because obviously it's insanely expensive to be at university. Yes, it blows my mind. Whenever I look back and and Sarah, my wife, says, "Oh, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't have regrets, all that sort of thing." And actually, my uh, my love of that period of my life is tempered by the fact that, my God, it's expensive to do that now. You know, I got yeah. a grant to go to university. That's how old I am, you know. But I got a grant to yeah. help me. And what would I have done if I hadn't had that grant? How would I have paid the rent? And it's it's another world now. And so that that side of it is really hard for young people my, my heart goes out to them from that perspective coming out of university with the level of debt that they come out of frightens me to death so um so from that perspective I'm very glad those days are behind me and I've been reading quite a lot about you and watching some interviews not that there's that many interviews of you being interviewed there's a lot of you chatting to other people but I, I don't know if I read it or I saw it that you said that you didn't really have chance to, to think about or engage with your sexuality until you were in your 30s mm, yeah. because of sort of a, a lack of visibility oh yeah yeah so when you were at uni I mean because I think for a, a lot of people it's around that time that you can start sort of going oh maybe I'm not straight or maybe I'm I'm not attracted to him or I or I'm noticing different people. So were you not really having that experience at uni? It's a very fair question. And it's so funny because even today I I get sort of quite embarrassed even talking about it because I look back and I think, how in God's name did you manage to go to university in London? <laughs> 
all places. You were in the capital city. I mean, and doing a radio show from Brighton. Come on, Jane. <laughs> this is oh my God, yeah, but I was the square one down there. Let me tell you, I was really square. I worked on a youth program that was full of, you know, it was all about promoting local bands. And, you know, hey, I'm an ABBA fan. You know, I was proper. <laughs> really not cool and trendy and the the the, um, the shining light in that pro- in that program was one joe wiley so she's oh, done rather cool. better than me <laughs> that's great well i wouldn't say better than you i'd say she's got a different career she was kind of cool back then you know so she's always been cool Joe Wiley is achingly cool. I met her once and didn't know what to say. She's like, you're very cool. Well, and we both love music and we both listen to a lot of radio too in this house. So yeah, I mean, I think she's great. I think there's a couple of really great people on on radio. Mm. Anyway, I won't go down that route. We'll never get away. It is a very fair question. How did I manage to get through three years at London University? Well, not how did you manage? That sounds sounds like I'm really poking you. What I mean is- I think it it about myself though. Don't worry. I mean, I, I, it is extraordinary to me really. I think- we're all the product of our upbringing. So there's an element of that. Plus, I mean, you know, as I say, I was, I was working from, I mean, voluntarily doing voluntary mm. work, but, but in, in your sort of teenage years, when your friends are going out on the RAS and having a good time and whatever, I was going to work at a local radio station. So I, God, that I sound so boring, don't I? Oh my God, you have to edit. No, do you know what? Because you, <laughs> you I, really <laughs> don't. Because no, but because I was the same with going to theatre club. While everyone was going out and, you know, getting really hammered, I was like putting on productions of Carousel. So like it's... <gasps> See, that sounds brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so I, I really, that, that, that really makes sense to me. I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't, why would you want to go to a club when you could be in a radio studio? That yes. makes sense, so... Totally, but those were my teenage years. So I think by I think I suppose what I'm trying to say in a slightly cat-handed way is by the time I got to university, you know, I grew up in a small town and suddenly I'm in the capital city. And I just wanted to start living life in every sense. So I was going to the theatre all the time. I was going mm. to the cinema. I was making brilliant friends and mm. I was doing those things that probably most people had done five years earlier. I was sort of playing catch up a little bit. I always think that. Uh, and I loved university. I mean, you know, that that's not a criticism at all. It was brilliant. But I think I was very slow getting to grips. I, I was still going out in my 20s and sort of having the fun that most people do when they're probably sort of 15, 16, 17. Mm-hmm. So I was still playing catch up. And I, I mean, I did, you know, it is on record. I did have a couple of boyfriends in my 20s. And I knew things weren't right. God, of mm-hmm. course. I mean, I yeah. knew that. Goodness. But I I just, I suppose I was sort of paralysed with fear, really. And I was paralysed with fear at the same time as being very a very, very busy person. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I was sort of a shift worker from the time I left university as well. You know, I have never worked nine to five in my life. Uh, not to denigrate nine to five, but there was no pattern to my life where which there might be for some people. Uh, the minute you're working in news of any type, you're not working normal hours. You're finishing very late. You're starting very early. You're working lots of weekends. And would there be times when something would happen and you'd get a phone call and you'd have to whiz to another country or did things like that happen 
that would have happened more once I started working in 24-hour news. So that was yeah. the very late 90s. Yes. And then once I started doing that, then yes, you could. And when I, fir- and when I first started, uh, which was uh, News 24, back when the mm-hmm. 24-hour news channel had a, had a proper name, um, uh, and when it was brand new, quite rightly, I was the most junior presenter and I was doing night shifts. I was on, yeah. I was given the graveyard shift, you know, quite rightly, because mm-hmm. I was the most junior and the least experienced. But you know, you don't have much social life when you're doing nights. No, so what would your hours have been? Um, I only did three nights a week, but then I did a Sunday lunchtime programme. So your whole week was shot because yeah. the only night I had for any kind of social life really was Friday night because I did, I would finish, I think my memory serves me correctly. I think I would, I guess I would finish on the Friday morning and I'd sleep. And then, so I'd have Friday night because I never worked Saturdays. So your only proper night for seeing your friends was Friday night and then Saturdays. And then you couldn't even go crazy on a Saturday night because I was doing a program on Sunday lunchtime. So it was seriously antisocial. But of course, I didn't think of it that way then because I loved it. I loved it. It was new. It was exciting. Um, It was challenging in the early days. and, And, you know, I never felt sorry for myself and thought, oh, all my friends are out having a great time and I'm on nights. Once you finish doing night shifts, you never want to go back to them. I can tell you that. And I did only do them for a couple of years. But even then, I moved from night shifts to the breakfast program, which actually is horrific. Breakfast is the worst of the lot because you're getting up at three in the morning. I mean, I I really struggle with that. I was better at nights because at least you sleep in one big chunk. I'm not an early bird at all. And never have been much worse now I'm 52 but but even then you know I was always better I could I was perfectly capable of broadcasting at 10 o'clock at night I was never capable of broadcasting at nine o'clock in the morning I mean I'm terrible it takes my brain ages to work up whereas I'm quite good late at night and some people mm. can't do that can they um, hopefully you're quite good late at night because otherwise yeah. you wouldn't be able to go on tour <laughs> yeah I mean but I really you know I know that feeling because certainly for the first you know seven or eight years of doing stand-up I had no social life and and I kind of loved that I was like I can't come to the party because I'm busy trying to be a comedian there was something really thrilling about it you know about like yeah. the, the the promise of oh my god this might be this gig could you be the gig be. That, yes, yes yes yeah you know but yeah so I understand that and it's really it's interesting what you say about being busy because I think that you know when I've spoken to different people on the podcast before when dealing with stuff like sexuality or even you know many things in life distraction can be a a wonderful thing because you can just sort of go well I'm too busy to deal with it you've hit the nail on the head that is it isn't it I was busy and I was genuinely busy and I also absolutely loved it perhaps Mm. if I had been I always think if I'd been in a job that you know I was unhappy I didn't love it I was a bit bored I'm quite sure I would have had to deal with with who I really was much much earlier because it would have been this sort of overbearing thing in my head but I was so busy and working Mm. such funny hours that you really can put things to the back of your mind you really can and without trying very hard to do it and and also when if you get those sort of family pressures of oh you've got a boyfriend all of that Mm. I mean for years I used to say oh I'm married to the BBC which sounds ghastly now I hear it out loud but I sort of got away with it because no one in my family had any experience of what I did of working mm. funny hours yeah and I was you know probably a bit a bit strange to them you know they'd never had anyone in this family who lived that sort of life and quite exciting that you were on the television you know absolutely and- quite fun and different and 
you know, I was I was seen to have, you know, made a success of things and mm. that's lovely. Um, not, you know, not that I've been insanely successful, but uh, but my brother and I both went to university and and my parents didn't. And, you know, that that's a big thing, isn't it? For sure. And and so f- until you get to about 30, I felt that that phrase of married to the BBC started wearing thin once you're sort of about 30 because you you can't keep using that line forever yeah but then slowly then in my 30s I remember it was sort of a I don't even know what it was but I I got to my 30th birthday and I was going out sort of (laughs) with a bloke at that point and I do remember thinking oh right 30 which feels so young now but at the time 30 feels like a big deal doesn't it and Mm -hmm. and I thought oh um something's not right here I really 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 have to address this I cannot keep living like this you know I'm not doing night shifts anymore I can't use that as an excuse and then it and then it was just a slow gradual but but so much harder because I'd left it late Mm. I I don't know you've probably spoken to lots of people on this podcast I'm I'm particularly uh, it's very common with women more common with women I think do you think who wait longer struggle more I think you know the lack of representation of 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 queer women I yeah I I just want to pick up on one thing that you said um first of all I think that you've referred to yourself as not a success a couple of times and I think the fact that you've been on the BBC for basically 30 years means that you are so I think you have to stop saying that Um, (laughs) but also I think it's interesting you saying about working because I think and this is my perspective so I don't want to put words in your mouth at all but certainly with like family stuff I always sort of because I knew that I was different I sort of thought, if I can be a real success, then mum and dad have really got something to rave about. Then the fact that I'm gay will be somehow less of a disappointment. That's so interesting. Yeah. I wonder whether, yeah. I don't know whether, you, whether there was a similar feeling, but it's, I've spoken to a lot of women who have really buried themselves in work. That's really interesting. But subconsciously, that's probably, there's probably an element of that. And I think I... I mean, I came out of the womb fairly ambitious, I think, as well. Mm. I don't know, again, how, why, I don't know where that comes from. But I think my insane amount of work in my 20s and sort of first half of my 30s, it was all genuine as well. I mean, I mm. do, there's an element of burying who I was, but also I think I'd have worked that hard even if I'd been straight and married yeah. and starting to have children because I just loved my job so much. I do yes. genuinely believe that I would have, pretty much the career stuff would have been fairly similar to what I've ended up with actually and also it's the societally it's the backdrop it's it's obviously your upbringing that affects us all obviously it's uh, growing up in a very small town where you didn't see anyone different I think that's mm-hmm. a factor working crazy hours but the backdrop of society you know you think mm-hmm. of someone of my age I mean most of people who listen to your podcast have probably watched it's a sin on channel four yeah wonderful russell t davis wonderful and heartbreaking and that was my growing up you know i was in my teen years when yeah. aids hit so i yeah. grew up with a backdrop of aids killing gay men for the most part i know other people yeah. too but that was largely and section 28 and yeah. so what was i I and anyone else who's my age what were we growing up with in Britain in those days it was lots of very bad stuff that said being gay is awful and you're a bad person and it might even kill you yeah that was our backdrop and just because I was female not male uh, I still felt AIDS very keenly I was very conscious of what it was doing to Mm -hmm. predominantly gay men and 
what does that say to you? That says being gay is an abomination, basically. Yeah. And so I thought, well, no, no wonder I struggled. And not just me, lots of lots of yeah. people in that era. And section 28. My God. I mean, you know, no, no teacher is allowed to talk to you about the fact that you might prefer people of your own gender. I mean, what's that? Yeah. It's heinous now, but we're now we know it's heinous. We're mature enough as a society to know how yeah. wrong it was. But when you were growing up with that, uh, in law, legislation, I mean, God, it, it seems medieval now that we've come through it, doesn't it? But it's so recent. You know, it's such a yes. recent history. Yes. You know, if I was at school the whole way through Section 28 and I'm 35, you know, I'm sure it has done something, you know, my therapist will confirm it's done something to me, you know, but I think that just that sort of constant hum of like, this isn't good. Just knowing that, you know, these feelings that you have, they're not ideal. Better not to be like that. If you could avoid it, that would be good, you know. Yeah. By the time that you were sort of considering your sexuality, were you... As a, a newsreader, as a presenter, people must feel like they know you. Like, do people often say hello to you but not really know where they know you from? I, I would say that's the most common reaction. They know they know your face. Um, and yeah. it's sort of, oh, did I meet you at a party? Or also, all news presenters with dark hair are all the same. So I have been mistaken <laughs> over my many years. I have been mistaken for Fiona Bruce, for Natasha Kopinski, for Sheena McDonald. You know, I mean, so there is a sort of generic... <laughs> I know what you do and I'm vaguely aware of you, but I probably don't know. You seem bright and I trust you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there must have been an element of, I don't want this to become sort of tabloid fodder. Where I was at the time with my career definitely made it harder. Now, I, I had internally made it harder for myself obviously with all the things we've talked about but the the fact that I was by that time on screen rather than a producer which is mm-hmm. essentially where I started without a shadow of a doubt I'm not trying to make excuses for myself but that definitely made it harder because I was using gaydar girls um yeah does that still exist no, I don't think um, so <laughs> I do remember that when you got a message it went do 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 <laughs> Do you remember oh my that? God. I'd completely forgotten that. Oh yeah. my God. Do, 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 do. Take me back. <laughs> <laughs> so you were, so that must have been kind of... Terrifying. Well, I never put yeah. a picture up, obviously. I didn't yeah, put of course. Because I didn't, you know. And one of my very dearest friends today is someone I met through Gaydar Girls. You know, we're just mm. friends. Yeah. And I'm sure for years, you know, I couldn't tell my mum how I met my friend Fiona because <laughs> how am I going to explain that? You know, and we're just friends. And, you know, she's a really good friend of mine. But so th- all of that was tricky, negotiating, yeah. that, navigating that, thinking, oh, my God, I hardly. And, and and that takes us to the bigger point about lack of representation. I knew I knew loads of gay men. I mean, I knew loads of gay men when I was at university. Yeah. But I didn't know gay women. I mean, mm-hmm. that's been the story throughout. Yeah. Always known gay men. I've came out of the womb, sort of socially liberal. Um, <laughs> again, don't know how, but, you know, no problem with anyone else being gay. Completely relaxed about it or bi or, you know, be who you want to be. I mean, I was like that when I was five. but And yet I couldn't apply that to myself. It was mm. totally fine for everyone else to be who they want to be and to have their own personality and to live the life they want to live. But I couldn't apply it to myself. I was too scared to apply it to myself. It's really interesting, isn't it? I've never had therapy, yeah. but probably a therapist would <laughs> have a field day with that. Quite often we can be quite kind to others in a way that we don't give ourselves a break. 
Yeah. I find. And that's something that's come up before um, in, in these conversations. And were you worried about... It was like they're like a catastrophizing element. Well, this is how my brain would work. If I go, oh, if I did come out and then there's loads of press about it, am I going to lose my job? Or are people going to not like that I'm on the BBC? Am I going to get a load of shit for it? Like, was there an element of that? Not, not to suggest that the BBC would get rid of you. That's not what I mean. But was there an element of that fear? This was, you know, 15, well, well I was mid-30s, I suppose. And so, yeah, 17 years ago, wasn't it? I, I probably didn't think I was going to be as drastic as lose my job. But nonetheless, I sure as hell didn't want... I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for articles in the press about it because... My dad probably didn't even know by that stage. I told my mum many years before I told my dad. They were still together, but I just, for complicated family reasons, mm. that was how we decided to, to do it in my family. So loads of people in the newsroom, well, everyone in the newsroom knew, to be honest, by the time it did eventually go in the press. Um, everyone I worked with knew, all my friends knew, it wasn't a secret. But I just, it's still another step beyond that to have other people writing about it and... We know what the tabloid press is like in this country. Some years before, I was probably about 29, 30, and there'd been a really snide little column in one of the tabloids that was that classic tabloid thing of firing a warning shot across my bows, which was dressed up as a little... Jane Hill has so many fans on BBC 24 Hour News. Isn't it funny that she doesn't have a boyfriend when she's so popular sort of thing? Nonsense article, absolute rubbish. Mm. It wasn't really an article about anything, but it was aimed at me. And it was them saying, we know you're gay. And that was just yeah. a shot. And I remember a friend of my mum's seeing that. I can't genuinely can't remember which tabloid it was, but... You know, people who aren't well versed in the media don't understand how that kind of stuff works. They yeah. thought that was a really nice piece about how much people liked me. And of course, this lady showed it to my mum and then my mum read it out to me over the phone and said, oh, there was this lovely article, darling, about blah, blah. And, and I just didn't. Your stomach dropped. And I just thought, I know what that article really means. Mm. And and I just had to brush, on, brush it under the carpet and say, oh, yeah, what a funny article. Yeah. And, and just just talk it away. Now, whether articles are still quite written like that today about people, I don't know, actually. I actually don't yeah. know. Would you really get away with being that snide and that underhand? I don't know. I have read some articles this week uh, when doing the research for this conversation that, that were written as you came out. Okay, well, interesting, because I, I obviously haven't of... read them for a very no. long time. No, which, I mean... Every one of them mentions how attractive you are, and quite a few of them sort of alluded to it being a waste. To which, of course, yes, I was like, right. "Not for the lesbians," <laughs> 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 which is obviously most important. But I, yeah, and I saw, and, I, and I, it really made me wince as I read it. Like you know, men up and down the country are going to be disappointed to yes. find this out, and you yes, sort that's of, the tone, isn't and it? And I think, yes. I think there's less of that. I hope there's less of that, but I think that potentially, if it was like you know, if a massive, you know, Hollywood starlet came out, I think there'd probably be undertones of that, but they wouldn't be able to be as direct. I hope and think you're right, actually, on that. And, you know, God, you know, I mean, I'm not, blimey, you know, I'm not Cara Delevingne <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But back in the day, again, bearing in mind, this was getting on for 20 years ago, there was, a, yes, there was a lot of, she doesn't look like a lesbian, does she? There was a lot mm. of that. And I'm afraid I even heard... I know that those sort of comments were made even 
in the newsroom you know I know yeah. were made because that was society back then I can think of even a, a woman who said it a straight mm. woman which is extraordinary now I don't think any of my colleagues would say that today I don't think you would talk like that um, and you know the BBC is a microcosm of society and 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 you know it was disappointing obviously that of some of my colleagues felt able to say that but I know it went on you know I wasn't blind yeah. to it I wasn't blind to what people are saying and don't get me wrong 99% of the people I worked with were lovely and supportive and couldn't care less and are yeah. liberal and at the time I really started telling people at work seriously <laughs> I always say without any pride I always say I was permanently drunk for six months because I found it so difficult to tell people and I would yeah. and I took my lovely lovely editor out for dinner and you know we were on the second only the two of us and we were on the second bottle of wine before I could even start to address it and I don't say that with any glee um, no. and I drink very little these days and, and, and now it seems daft but I couldn't get through it without I was so terrified of telling him you know a straight straight white man and bless him he was brilliant and very supportive yeah couldn't give a monkeys, um, gave me a few tips as to how to then start telling other people. And uh, let's not forget how important allies are because he his response yes. was the best example of being an ally. Just mm. saying, I don't really care, Jane, but thanks for telling me. Um, <laughs> let me know if you want some help telling anyone else. No one cares. Please just keep being good at your job sort of thing. Yeah. Think, bless you. That is the textbook perfect response. Absolutely. And and straight people and men can and should be allies and that is the perfect way to do it as someone who doesn't doesn't work for the BBC anymore doesn't work with us but that was brilliant but you still don't know how each conversation is going to go do you and that didn't mean I could go into the next conversation and not have another bottle of wine because just because he reacted brilliantly you think oh how's I know he was great but how's the next person going to be so oh dear the bars of Soho did did well for a period from me while I was telling it. You were keeping them going. <laughs> it's, but I think as well, if you're coming out to people that have known you for a long time, for me, there was part of me that sometimes felt like it was like an omission of sort of guilt that I'd been lying to them somehow. Yes, yes, yes. Something like that. Yes, yes. With hindsight, despite the traumas of, of the job, which we've talked about, it's actually I felt the most guilty telling my university friends because mm. I thought wow we've all known each other for 14 15 years by this point 13 years and please please don't think I was lying to you please don't mm. think that because you're some of the most important people in my world and I was lying to myself yeah <laughs> so I was only lying to you because I was lying to myself first you know mm. I wasn't being rude or mean or trying to hurt you or anything and th those were very hard conversations and of course they were all great because they have no yeah. forever but you feel quite silly I, I I felt quite silly telling people who I'd known for a very long time whereas someone who's a much newer friend or someone who is a work colleague and you might have a great relationship with them but they're still just a work colleague yeah there's less pressure in that way it, it is, it's upsetting telling older friends isn't it it's it's harder I think I think yeah no I, I I get that I mean I've got a really good friend who I went to drama school with years ago who sort of came out much later and I'm not sure I'm not really sure whether she knew or whether it's just her wife or, or what the story is but I think that there is there is something that is harder when you are that bit older and you sort of and you've got like lots of your life sorted in other ways but you're like, oh, now there's this big thing I need to deal with. Yes. That I think, yeah, I think it's very common. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yes. And 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 particularly among, among women. And I do think more of more gay women or bi women struggle 
because even today here we are 21 you can still practically count on well certainly count on two hands the number of brilliant lesbian role models who are really out there and in some bits of the BBC aren't so bad but you know I always I still joke today joke in inverted commas about being the only lesbian in the newsroom now I'm not quite but you can count us on one hand yeah in the whole newsroom in 2021 why what where are they all what's going on and and I think that's still an issue you know representation is hugely important you can't be what you can't see isn't a cliche for me it's true It's true. Absolutely. And I think that that's like, you know, I often say like, as I was growing up, the gay women that I was aware of that were on telly lots or often were Sandy Toxvig, Sue Perkins and Claire Balding. Yes. And I love those women, but it's still the same women. It's the same three today, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. I guess Steph is, yeah. is now on telly quite a lot. Yes. You know, you're obviously in the newsroom. There's, there's a few stand-ups like me around, but there does often feel like Certainly with telly, it's like, we've got one. Oh, we've got one. gosh, yes. Tick that box. You know, we've and, and, and almost like I'll give myself a pat on the back for having one. And you yes. sort of go, and, you know, I, I've got great relationships with gay men and lots of my very dear friends are gay men. But as a, a gay man, there seems to be so much more types of gay guys, which is wonderful. And each of those people should be there. I just wish we had as many queer women. Yes. To see. Yes, you're absolutely spot on. I think it's hugely important. And I don't know why we're still where we are really and in fact it's really interesting because Sarah was my wife was telling me only the other day she's doing a a master's and there was an academic study that she was being told about and they had looked at gay representation on British telly and they counted the gay population as something like nine and a half percent and they said if you take it as nine and a half percent gay people on British telly um, I assume they meant gay and bi are slightly overrepresented. It's actually something like 11% on telly. Mm-hmm. And I said, but where are all the women? And she said, aha, yeah. well, if you actually look at the breakdown, overall, the representation is good because it broadly matches society, but it was white gay men. Yeah. Massively, massively in favour of white gay men. And non-white gay people and lesbians were way down way down yeah. way down so there is i mean i'm all for, exactly to your point i'm all for having the gay men that we have on telly and radio and in high profile jobs but where are the women and where are the gay people of color yes an issue there absolutely i know that you do like a lot of diversity and inclusion work does that feel like something you sort of have to talk about is it like a desire from within like I need to talk about this stuff I feel I do feel yes I have to uh, I don't want it to sound pompous at all but I I think it comes from my experience I feel mm. like I almost have a duty to be very open now about who I am <laughs> partly it's I guess it's ma- making up for lost time but it's that sense of I struggled so much to come to terms with who I was so much and I know that a lot of that was because of the lack of representation. I didn't see gay women in public life. I just didn't. And therefore I thought, how can I possibly have a career of any kind, let alone a successful one, if I'm mm-hmm. gay? I mean, this was all subconscious. A lot of it was subconscious. Yeah. But I I know that some of my struggles were because I, there were no role models. 
there were no role models. There was the wonderful Sandy Toxvig, who is my heroine to this day. And there were, you know, there was Martina in the tennis world and Billie Jean King, but there was no one else for me. And that terrified me, I think, the fact that I was going to be isolated and that it would somehow mean I couldn't have a successful career in news. So that has, has made me, I hope, reasonably bold now about mm. talking about who I am because I don't want someone else who's currently at university, let's say, to, to waste, to waste the whole of their 20s trying to be something and someone they're not. Mm. What a waste of time energy that I could have put into other things yeah what a dreadful waste and, and like when I think about that time for me it feels so desperately sad even though the boyfriend I had was very nice I'm now like oh god it's so sad that I was like pushing myself into being someone that I knew knew that I wasn't but it just yeah and, yes. that, and I mean that's the, the very reason you know when I got in touch with you about doing the podcast it's the very reason that I want to you know create a show like this is just to be like hey there's loads of us and yes. it's okay you're not alone you're not yeah. alone I basically make this podcast for 15 year old me that's yes. the, the truth of it I may like you know she's never gonna hear it but <laughs> but I'm making it for her actually that's the reason I'm very open about having had a mastectomy actually is Again, I just think, you know, knowledge is power. And I think that's reassuring, I hope, to someone who is maybe just going through a diagnosis. And, you know, I think I hope it's quite positive for people to look at me and think, wow, she had a really big operation less than three years ago and her life is pretty normal. But was that something as well that you had to wonder about sharing with the public or when you were going to share it with the public? The when is really interesting because... Um, we all know and can think of people who have gone very public with particularly a breast cancer diagnosis as soon as they get it. And that's, you know, I'm not judging them. If that's their way of dealing with it, mm -hmm. all power to them. Um, I really thought that through when I was diagnosed and thought, do you know what, if this all goes well and I come out the other end, which thank God I have, then I feel quite passionate about being public about it because I think that's reassuring to other women because let's not forget one in seven women in the UK will get breast cancer at some point in their lives. I mean, the stats are staggering. Yeah. So uh, if I can be at all positive for, to other people, then I think that's really important. But I definitely took a view that I wasn't going to talk about it immediately because you just don't know how things are going to go. You have your prognosis from your consultant and I, I love my consultant. She's fantastic. And, and I was very clear in my own mind about how things were going to go and, and what this what this treatment strategy was and you can imagine given my job the minute I was told I did an awful lot of research and you know within about yes, two right. weeks I could have taken an A-level in breast cancer you know because I just that's obviously my nature and my job and I wanted to know mm -hmm. everything about it but I still thought there is no way I'm going to start going public and telling people what date my operation is and all the rest of it because you don't know you don't know how you're going to mm. feel and you might think oh I'm going to tell everyone about my you know how week by week how things are going no because you just don't know how tired you're going to be after the operation you're still mm -hmm. having a general anesthetic I was slim and fit and healthy when I was diagnosed thank god because that made a huge difference to my outcome I know it did and I, and I certainly recovered very quickly from the operation which is fantastic obviously that partly that's the, the skill of the surgical team obviously but they said to me you know the fact that you are slim and fit and healthy is going to massively benefit you Jane you know you are going into this 
from a very good standpoint and that's great so it did all go extremely well thank god touch wood after the op but you don't know that's going to be the case when you go in for major surgery and so i didn't want to put myself under pressure to feel like i had to fulfill some kind of social media commitment or whatever because you are knackered even as a fit person you you know general anesthetic takes it out of you you are knackered i slept an awful lot for many weeks and that's good it's good to sleep because that's when you heal so i didn't want to put myself under any pressure and so i i only started talking about it once i'd gone back to work five months later and i'm really really happy with that decision that was for me personally that was the perfect way to do it because i'd gone through everything my family had sort of come to terms with everything and and I was on the road to recovery and I was healing well and I was taking regular exercise and 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 that's fine and I think start talking about it once you're in a good place and you've got the energy you've got the energy to start answering people's questions on Twitter and all that sort of thing and and I can say I'm not judging anyone who does it differently that's that's their shout entirely and we all deal with a diagnosis in our own way and we have to be allowed to deal with it in our own way Mm -hmm. yeah and now I'm doing okay hopefully <laughs> I feel okay that, I mean, that's fantastic did you just find a lump is that is yes. was that yeah yes. I found a lump in my left breast and I went to the doctor relatively quickly I mean not like the next day but it was a it took me a couple of weeks to get an appointment and I have had a history of cysts so actually at the time I wasn't worried at all because Actually, when I found it, I thought it, I thought of it, I'm afraid, just as an inconvenience. I thought, oh, my God, another bloody cyst. Oh, my God, that's another trip to the GP. Yeah. There's another day off work to go and get a biopsy. What a pain, you know. So in a way, it was good because I wasn't scared because mm. I thought it was just another blooming cyst, which was an inconvenience to my daily routine. And then eventually, over time, I realised I knew I knew I was going to get bad news. I was pretty positive I was going to get bad news because I'd had investigations for cysts particularly in my 30s actually as a woman you just know you can read the room you can mm, just judge yeah. the medic's tone and body language and I thought mm, they're just behaving a little bit differently from how they have done in the past that was that was my gut feeling so I thought there was a fairly high chance that things were going to be different this time as indeed proved to be the case but you know I've come out the other side of it now. Yeah. When I was diagnosed, I said to the, the specialist nurse, I said, what, you know, what do I do going forward? What do I do? I'm very practical. Yeah, and, right. sort of mm-hmm. and, and she said, she said, keep eating a healthy diet, Jane. And this is great. Try to remove as much stress as possible from your life. Right. <laughs> that's, that's the guiding principle. And I thought, well, we should all be living like that all the time. Shouldn't yeah, we? absolutely. Sometimes that's easier said than done. But <laughs> I mean, I could talk to you for ages. I'm fascinated by uh, your work and, and your life. But I, 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 I've got one more question before I, I, I let you get on with your day. And it's a question that I ask everyone that comes on the show. Maybe I'm thinking of uh, the, the version of Jane, maybe when you're sort of in your late 20s or early 30s, when you were sort of beginning to deal with your sexuality. And you can think of yourself or you can think of someone that's maybe in a similar position now if you could reach out to someone and give them a bit of advice or give them a bit of encouragement, what, what would you say? Oh, you see, I, I, I want to say you're allowed to be happy. You're allowed to be yourself. There is nothing wrong with being yourself. There is nothing wrong with you. And don't always behave. <laughs> as long as you're not hurting other people, you don't have to behave as society expects. I think I thought I had to behave a certain way, perhaps partly because I looked a certain way. 
Mm-hmm. Doesn't look like a lesbian. Never <laughs> forget that phrase. That's just a BBC blow dry. That's all that is, isn't it? <laughs> you, you, Susie, are seeing my mad, crazy, wild dog walking hair, which, as you have just alluded to, I have to straighten every day for my job. It drives me mad. <laughs> it's not selfish to sometimes put yourself first and do what makes you happy. I think I thought I had to be and look and behave and perform a certain way in life. And what a dreadful waste of my 20s that was, and part of my 30s, actually. Which is hilarious, because if someone had said that to me aged 18, I still wouldn't have probably been able to accept it. But but let's try and look at those people who are out in public life and realise that they've done okay, and they've had a happy family life, I hope, and they've had mm-hmm. a good career, and, you know, you can be gay or bi and do all those things. It just didn't occur to me in my 20s that that I could be gay that didn't occur to me that that would be socially acceptable and that's quite sad isn't it really mm. I feel like I feel like I've ended on a very mournful point and I don't want to end your podcast with a with a sad thought no but I, th- I think that the fact that you are happily married and you have the life that you wanted and you've you know done it on your own terms and you are still on the BBC and you are still someone that is you know you're a, a gay woman that's on television all the bloody time I think that I think that we, we can only end on an up so I think it's okay <laughs> oh I hope so I hope so it will be okay and 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 reach out and talk to people if you're not mm-hmm. sure talk to people I hope that's different today I think that probably is different today. I think so yeah I, I, I wouldn't have known where to go or who to talk to I wouldn't mm. have had a clue and I think now there are resources out there yeah definitely Stonewall AKT helplines and charities and 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 maybe some of them were there when I was, you know, 25 years ago, but I, I didn't know really how to find mm. them. And, and now there is a lot more help and a lot more connections that can be made. And I think just having the internet yes. just means there's access to stuff that, yes. that, that you didn't have, but also I didn't really have, where, where you can seek out that representation. Yes. Oh, Jane, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Susie. That was the fantastic Jane Hill. I just loved that. I loved it so much. Thank you so much to all of you that have listened. Thank you to those of you that get in touch. Um, I love making this podcast. I'm really pleased that you love listening to it. I will speak to you next week. But until then, have a great week. Bye-bye.